Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> I know what I'm up against here. It is a holiday weekend. College football has started. Need I say any more? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we find ourselves. We're going to handle the second half of this chapter, which is so important and critical in the life of a church. And if you, as always, if you don't have a copy of God's Word for yourself, I encourage you to use one of the ones in the rack in front of you. As always, we mention this every Sunday because we think God's Word is so central to the life of the church and to your life. If you don't own a Bible, we would encourage you to take that Bible and keep it as, as our gift to you and to read it, to come back, to connect and be part of this local church or if this isn't the right place for you, some other place that, that preaches God's Word and, and extols the glory of Christ. All right, well, uh, as God would have it, we find ourselves in a passage of Scripture that is uh, particularly controversial and in a few parts very difficult to interpret and understand. And so that is one of the reasons that we just preach through books of the Bible, so we avoid skipping over difficult texts like this. And so uh, my plan is to read this text and pray, and then... We're just going to work back through it almost verse by verse and just exegete or it's a word that means just explain what the Bible is saying. And uh, that, that's, that's really our goal today. And then at the end of our time, we're going to come around the Lord's table. For those of you that are believers in Jesus Christ, we once a month, generally on the first Sunday of the month, take time to remember the Lord's Supper, where we come together as a church family, inviting other Christians who believe the same gospel that we do, that may be members of other churches, to come with us to this family table where we will take a little piece of bread and a small cup of juice that isn't just tradition or, or something that Christians do as, as a kind of uh, rote uh, rite. But we are coming together to remember the most important thing in the history of time and universe. When God became man, when Jesus Christ laid down his life on the cross to bear sin for his people. To absorb the punishment that should have been ours and to extinguish it, to remove it. And to then rise again in victory over it, conquering death, sin, the grave every evil force that is against us, Satan himself, and now commands all people to repent. We will come to this table and we will receive as a family this meal where we remember what Jesus has done for us. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to come to this table. If you're not trusting in Christ, uh, we encourage you not to take this meal with us. Because we do not want you to proclaim or to act like you are proclaiming something, in fact, that you do not believe. And so we're not trying to exclude you in any way or to embarrass you. We are actually merely trying to love you and to graciously, out of love, confront you with the truth that you do not believe in the news that we think is the most important thing in the world. 
And in fact, that's what we want to do here today is to think about what it means to trust Christ and to think about what it means to live in his way. And this morning, we are confronted in the scriptures with what it means to really be a man and a woman and God's great design in gender. So let me read the text and, and pray. And before I read the text, let me just say that this is no small truth here that we're going to handle today. This is certainly a controversial truth. In fact, we live in a time and culture and country where our government is confused not just about marriage and sexuality, but our culture and government is confused about really gender itself. We have a a government that mandates that school systems provide for transgender bathrooms and to allow people that are biologically born one gender, if they self-identify as another gender, to go into the bathroom of another gender solely because that person self-identifies. Friends, at its best, that is confusion, and at its worst, that is blatant rebellion against God's created order. Now, of course, we want to have great compassion on people that are mixed up and confused about who they are as a result of the fallenness of mankind and the brokenness of this world. Of course, we want to have great compassion on all manner of people, no matter what their, their issues may be. But friends, I think we need to realize that what's at stake here is, is more than just order in the church, but a very understanding of what it means to be human, to be created male or female. And so with that, let me read the text and pray, and then we'll work back through it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, that's abundantly clear, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to pray. Pray with me and pray for me as we work back through this text. (laughs) Oh, Lord, uh, what a privilege to come to your word. We confess that our eyes are dim. We see, we see dimly this side of eternity as a result of our rejection, as a result of our sin nature, even those of us that have been born again, regenerated, renewed, and have the mind of Christ. We, we still see dimly. So we know and we confess that we need your help to understand your holy, inspired, inerrant, completely true, without air word. 
we pray that we would humble ourselves and that we would not sit in judgment over your word, but that it would judge us and that we would subordinate and submit ourselves to it for our good, for the glory of your name. And Lord, even as we deal with this difficult text and this difficult truth, beyond that, would you warm the hearts of Christians so that they might see Jesus more clearly? And would you, by your sovereign grace, for any that are in this room not yet trusting in Jesus, would you give them a heart of flesh so that they might believe in you? Would you give them the very thing that they cannot bring? Would you give them faith and repentance, the gift of faith and repentance that comes as a result of a new heart? And would you save them for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's just work our way back through it. Verse 8, let's read that again. Paul, on the heels of verses 1 through 7, where Paul is exhorting the church to not be an exclusive sect of just uh, people, whether they be Jews or uh, people that are in the know, he is exhorting the church to not be exclusive, but to be the type of community that prays for all types and is open for all types of people because, in fact, that is God's will. It's his desire that all kinds of people, all types of ethnicities, all types of classes of people would come to the knowledge of Christ who died as a ransom for all. And then on the heels of that, he says, in light of that, verse 8, I desire then that in every place, and I think by every place, he doesn't mean literally every place in the world, but And all of the places where the church is meeting and all of the gatherings of God's people in the local church, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So apparently the context of this exhortation by Paul in verse 8 is that in the church in Ephesus, and remember, we've gone over this the last couple weeks, that Paul is writing this letter to this young man named Timothy who he has left to pastor this church in the city of Ephesus, which would have been on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And Paul, several years before, had brought the gospel to the city of Ephesus. You can read about that story. In Acts chapter 19, Paul brings the gospel, and really the gospel over the course of a couple years, turns this city upside down and causes great riots and a great disturbance. And the, the gospel brought the truth of God to bear on this culture of idolatry and carnality. And, and Paul really up, uh, uproots this city and then, as was his custom, moves on after a couple years and has left this young man, Timothy, to pastor this church at Ephesus, which, by the way, is the church to whom Paul later writes and becomes the letter of Ephesians. And he is saying to them, apparently, that there is a problem in the church with men who evidently were having problems with anger and infighting. And this clearly hindered the ministry of the local church and the life of the local church and that church in Ephesus' ability to display the gospel. So we could definitely, if time was, was, was warranted, we could spend time thinking about just the sin and the, the hindrance of anger and quarreling. And certainly those aren't just issues for men in Ephesus, but they're, they're issues to, 
to men today. They apply to every generation. They, they apply certainly even, even to my own heart as I think about how quick to anger I am. And Paul is saying to them, to these men, that their inward self-absorption and giving into these things is inhibiting their ability to lead the church and to posture themselves towards God in prayer and leadership. But let's not just let ourselves off the hook and say, oh, well, you know, I mean, I get angry every now and again, and I haven't really had a fight with anybody in a long time, so this isn't me. I just wonder. This is the cultural setting in Ephesus. These are the two things that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to mention in particular to these men. But I wonder what Paul would say to men in our cultural setting, where things that are particularly, we are prone to, to abdicate our spiritual leadership. Maybe it would be recreation, or maybe it would be some hobby, or some leisure, or some self-absorption. I mean, all manner of things that we could ponder about what the Holy Spirit would say to us about men, and how we abdicate, how we give in to things that cause us to be taken out of spiritual leadership and a posture towards God that is so critical in the life of the local church. And we're going to look at just a moment when we get to the end of this text about the order that God has given and how men are to humbly lead. The church should be built on one of the foundations of men being humble, Godward, Christ-like leaders. Men who are oriented towards God. Men who show up on time, who lead their families in getting ready for gathered worship. Men who pray with their families. Men who have the Bible as central. Men who are not pushed and dragged along by their wives because they are spiritually passive. Men who bring their Bibles to church. Men who open their Bibles. Men who sing Men who talk about more than just the game last night or the opening of some hunting season. Men who are spiritually engaged. A church will only, a group of people who are trying to display the gospel will only go so far as the men, not because women are less than, and we're going to get into that in a moment, but it will only go so far because of God's design It will only go so far as the men who are engaged and leaning forward and leading and have a posture of Godwardness and desire to honor God in their life, it will only go so far as the men will lead them. And so this is a great exhortation to to young men and old men sitting in this room to be be men that, that whatever it looks like in our lives, are praying, are lifting. And I don't think that means that all men in every culture have to lift their hands, but that we are Godward in our orientation. I, I could go on. I won't. Verse 9. All right. It gets, it's like it gets thicker and thicker and more controversial as we go. Verse 9. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. 
Okay, so what's the context of verses 9 and 10? Well, I think there's two things bearing down on Paul that are on his heart and mind as he is giving this admonition to the women in the church at Ephesus that they would dress, not only dress, but also comport themselves in a way that promotes godliness. The first thing that was in, uh, at work here in this culture in Ephesus was that it was a culture in Ephesus that was, was very wrapped up in sexual immodesty and, and carnality. They worshipped many false Greek gods, Artemis being the primary one, who was this Greek goddess who was uh, sort of the, 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 the protector of women and was a symbol of female fertility, and she was like the goddess of childbirth. It's not that she, as that false goddess, was particularly uh, sensual, but the idea that this woman that they worshipped, this Greek goddess, was all about being a woman and, and rearing children uh, bore on the culture in a way that it was very important for a woman to be able to attract a man. And of course, they worshipped many other false goddesses like Aphrodite that certainly through their worship of these false Greek goddesses promoted a carnal licentiousness and sexuality that pushed the women to dress in a way that was very, very provocative. And then the second thing that was bearing down on the church in Ephesus regarding a woman's attire was that there was this class division. There were very likely wealthy women who had become Christians and were now members of the church. And one of the ways that there was a kind of social demographic sort of breakdown in the culture was is it was very obvious who was of what particular class by the way people would dress. And so so women, you can see there, there's a clue to it at the end of verse 9 where it says that they would dress with costly attire. And Paul is saying that not only is there a sort of licentiousness and promiscuity that can be promoted in the way a woman dresses, but he's saying that there is a sort of class division that creeps into the church when women are putting too much into their clothing. I think this is precisely what Paul, later on when he writes to the Corinthians, is getting at when he talks about rich Christians snubbing poorer Christians around the communion table. In fact, in just a moment, when we're done with this sermon, we're going to come to, this, to the Lord's table, and Springer's going to lead us through communion, and he's going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. A little bit before where Springer, Springer will read from us, in 1 Corinthians 11, we read where Paul is upset at the Corinthian church about how there is division, class division in the church. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, it says this. We'll have it on the screen. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together for the Lord's Supper and for worship, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what's going on here? When they were coming together to eat, evidently the, the haves, the wealthier Christians, were you know, catering in, you know, carabas. 
and were stuffing their faces in it and not sharing with the Christians who couldn't afford food, apparently. And so Paul is very concerned in his letters to the New Testament churches about potential class divisions. And isn't that the very thing that he prayed that he was wanting the church to see in the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 2 where he says, no, Jesus is for all, for all types of people, not just Jews, but Gentiles, not just for wealthy, but for the poor. He is for all kinds of people, not just for church kids, but for the sinner that is, seems a million miles away from God. And so in this context, there were these two things bearing down on, on how these women were dressing. And Paul is admonishing. I think it's very clear. I think he is saying that a woman should dress and comport herself in a way that commends godliness. She should dress in a way that does not flaunt maybe her social status, and she should dress in a way that does not allow her to be objectified. Now, by and large, we are not worshiping false Greek goddesses in America. But we have our own false gods, don't we? We live in a culture that objectifies women. We live in just as much of a carnal and licentious and sexualized culture as any culture in the history of civilization. Do, do we not? I mean, I know I harp on it. I, I know. And, but I mean, j- you just, just look at social media and the pressure that is on young women when they take a picture that is going to be posted on social media. God help the teenage girl that doesn't pop the right hip posture when she gets a picture taken with five of her friends on the first day of school. Why? Because that poor little girl has grown up in a culture with the false God that has told her that her value And her worth to her society is whether or not she can get guys to look at her and lust for her. Now, it's either really quiet in here because it's Labor Day weekend or because the Holy Spirit is dealing with our hearts. I'm not sure. But friends, that's the world we live in. And Paul is commending to the church that women fight this. And that men create, I think implied in this, is that men, by the way they raise their daughters and by the way they treat women, and we're going to get to how Paul commends men to treat women when we get to 1 Timothy 5 verse 2 where he says, young men, treat women as sisters, not as conquests or objects. But he's saying that men create a culture in your church and women live out your femininity and your beauty in a way that adorns the gospel and does not obscure it. I don't think, and for some of you that are maybe wearing gold and maybe have your hair braided right now, I don't think, I know you're like, oh my gosh, where's this going? (laughs) 
I think this was a cultural expression in Ephesus, particularly of immodesty. I don't think it has transcultural throughout time application necessarily. I think we see the same thing in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, where the Apostle Peter gives almost a similar word-for-word exhortation about how women are to comport themselves. So let me read a little out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter says to women here, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So I think Peter, who's, ri- who's writing this letter later after Paul, is picking up on Paul and is using Paul's teaching here as the Holy Spirit's bringing this truth together. But notice what Peter says here. It's almost word for word. He says, let your ad- but let your adorning be the hidden... P- or verse 3, do not let your adorning be external... And I think implied in that is merely external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. So I don't think that Peter, if we read that closely, he's not saying you can't wear gold and jewelry and braided hair. Because if he's saying what you can't wear, then he's also saying you can't wear clothes. (laughs) Do you see that? He's saying don't let your adorning be gold or braided hair or clothes. So he can't be saying don't wear gold and braided hair because then included in that list of what you can't do is clothes. And certainly Peter's not saying women walk around naked, right? That would actually compound the problem, I think. I think that what is going on here is a particular cultural issue that Paul is dealing with in Ephesus that we see again picked up in Peter that has a bit more of a transcultural application saying, women, posture yourself in a way that your adornment isn't physical, where your adornment is inward. It's a quiet and perishable spirit, of, a beautiful spirit, and it's not, it's not an ostentatious carnality that is either flaunting your wealth or flaunting your body. Because these are hindrances in the church for the display of the gospel. Okay, it gets more controversial. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. (laughs) Here it is. In fact, I was thinking this, this verse might have like a little wick attached to a stick of dynamite coming up out of it. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, so let's look at these three verses and and, and try and understand what Paul is saying. First, verse 11 says, he says, let a woman learn. That in and of itself would have been in many subcultures and pockets of Ephesus and in the Roman Greek world at the time would have been revolutionary. Paul is actually commending that women should learn 
when many of the women in first century Roman, the Roman Empire and Greek culture were uneducated and were not allowed to learn. And Paul is actually turning the tables upside down and he's, he's, he's encouraging the learning of women. And we breeze over that to the more difficult, maybe controversial portions of this text, realizing that Paul is actually being revolutionary in many ways, actually encouraging and admonishing women. So women should learn. Women should are co-heirs with the grace of God with men and should learn just like men. So what, what is he saying? Well, to understand what he is saying, I think we should understand first what he is not saying. First, he's not saying that women cannot speak at all in church when he says that they should learn quietly and then at the end of verse 12 that they are to remain quiet. Why do we know that Paul is saying that it, this is not a rule that women cannot speak in church? Well, because in other parts of the Bible, specifically 1 Corinthians 11, I read out of it a little bit about the instruction around communion. We're going to be in it again later when we come to the table. But in the first part of that chapter, Paul actually encourages women to pray and to prophesy And we're not going to get into the definition of what prophecy is at this moment, but I think that is inspired speech for the building up of God's people in the local church. Paul actually encourages women in 1 Corinthians 11 to speak, to pray, to prophesy in the gathered assembly, but to do so in a way, he says specifically, the cultural cultural admonition of having a head covering, which would denote a woman's submissiveness either to her husband if she was married or if she was a single woman to her father or the leadership of the church. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is saying that there is an appropriate, in fact, he encourages women to speak in gathered worship, but to do so in a respectful way. So what type of speech is Paul talking about in verses 11 through 13 that he says women cannot do? Well, I think it's bound up in verse 12. The type of speech that Paul is saying women should not do in gathered worship when the church is assembled is the type of speech that is teaching and exercising authority over men. Now, clearly, let's say a couple things, lest we misunderstand. Certainly, women are to teach women. In fact, in his letter to Titus, in Titus chapter 2, he says that women should teach women. And in his second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he commends Timothy's mother and grandmother about how they have taught him. No, what's going on here is that he is saying that God has an order and that in the gathered assembly of God's people, the ones that are supposed to do the teaching and to exercise the leadership over the church is men. And so the type of speech that is bound up in teaching the gathered, mixed-gendered congregation and the type of speech that is shepherding, leading, governing the local assembly of God's people is something that is reserved for men and not women. Now, why? Why? Because there are some objections to this. Some people would say, well, okay, I mean, because that's clearly, let's just step, regardless of what you think about this text or maybe what you've heard, that is clearly what Paul is saying. That this type of speech of teaching and having authority and leading the local church, he's saying to the church at Ephesus that a woman should not speak in that manner in the gathered church. Why, though? 
Why? Well, some would say throughout history that uh, what's going on here is that the women, particularly in Ephesus, were uneducated. And so therefore, we don't want uneducated people to be teaching and leading the church. And so that's why. It was just a cultural concern, and it certainly doesn't have application to other cultures and other generations and other centuries. Or people say that the other thing that's going on in Ephesus is that the women in Ephesus in particular were teaching heresy. And so they say, you see here, here's the two reasons why Paul restricts the Ephesian women from teaching in the church and having authority is because they were either uneducated or they were teaching heresy. But that does not, as the argument goes, have application to churches in all times and all centuries and all cultures. The problem with that objection and line of thinking is that is not where Paul goes to in the next verse. Look at verse 13. I'll read the whole thing again. He says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Again, not meaning she can't speak at all, but there's this type of speech in the local church, teaching with authority, leading the church. She is to remain quiet in that type of speech. Why? Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Do you see what Paul just did there? He roots and grounds his command in God's created order even before the fall of mankind. So he doesn't say, look, Ephesus, I know we got a problem here. We got a bad lot of apples with these, with these girls here. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do, Timothy? Most of them are uneducated. The rest of them are teaching heresy. Half of them don't know how to dress. We got a train wreck going on here. In Ephesus, for now, don't let the women teach because we all know how weak and uneducated and quite frankly, just less than women are, right? <laughs> Timothy. And when people read this today, they superimpose that chauvinistic, sinful attitude towards women on Paul. And if that is what Paul was saying, we would rightly say, no, that's wrong. Or, or we would rightly say, no, that is a cultural situation that Paul is dealing with. But verse 13, Paul says, the reason why this is in the church, the reason why God has designed it this way, is not because women are intrinsically less intelligent or uneducated or teaching heresy or are in some way less than men. No, men and women are co-heirs with God. Men and women in their intrinsic value as people are no less or no more valuable than men. But Paul roots the reason why women should not teach and have authority in the church in the pre-fall order of creation and God's good design. Do you see that? And so that is why, and we'll get to this when we get to 1 Timothy 3, when he gives the qualifications for elders, pastors in the church, I think that is why clearly churches like us have historically held that the office of pastor elder, which I think are synonymous words in the New Testament, is an office that only men should hold. Hear me. 
not because women are not as good of a leader, leaders, not because women cannot teach as well as men. Sometimes, in fact, in many situations, they do those two things better. But because God has a design for the genders, for men and women to complement each other, not compete against one another as a display of his good design to an onlooking world. And so I want you to see, just if you have the objection, you may say, well, wait a minute, Brad, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, time out, gotcha on this one. On verses 9 and 10, you were appealing to a cultural situation in Ephesus. You just said that he's just speaking culturally, and that I can braid my hair and wear gold as long as I'm doing it in a way that, you know, comports godliness. And you're saying that that admonition in verses 9 and 10 is not transcultural, trans-time, but you're saying what's going on in verses 11 through 13 is. And I'm saying yes, because that's exactly the way Paul takes it. He roots his exhortation and command in verse 13 in the pre-fall order of creation. He's saying this is how God designed it. Now let's just admit there are things that we don't like in the Bible, but there are things we have to deal with in the Bible. And if we don't like this... At issue, what we have here is we are really, we have a problem with the way God created things. And I don't have time to do this, but if I did, I'd take you down this rabbit trail where I would tell you, sister, if you're fighting against this, I would take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul actually compares the relationship between a man and his wife the complementary relationship between a man and his wife, the subordinate and submissive role that a woman should have to her husband, he compares that to the intertrinitarian relationship between the father and the son. And so if you are a woman and you're saying, I don't like this Christianity thing because it subjugates women and makes them less than, no, dear sister, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul compares the position of womanhood to the position of Christ the Son in the Trinity. And there is nothing more glorious to be compared to than Jesus himself. And there is nothing less glorious about the Son than the Father. The beautiful doctrine of the Trinity shows us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all co-equal and glorious in their nature, but they have different roles. And men and women, in the way they relate to one another, are to commend that echo of the Trinity, even in the way we interact with one another. What a privilege. What a privilege. Now, dear sister, if you're reacting to chauvinistic, broken, hierarchical, tyrannical, sinful male leadership, I want to come alongside you. I want to put my arm around you. I want to say, yes, that is wicked and cruel. But that is not what Paul is commending here. Verse 14. Oh, gosh, it gets even more controversial. Here we go. <laughs> and lighten up. Give me, let me come up for air. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. (laughs) Okay, what is this verse saying? Well, many in church history have, I think, wrongly read this to think or mean that women are by nature more gullible or less discerning than men. 
because they think that Paul is saying here that Adam was not deceived in the garden and the woman was deceived by the serpent and kind of it all started with a woman's weakness or gullibility and that Paul is basing his admonition that women shouldn't be teachers and leaders in the church over men because of that sort of inherent weakness in women. I don't think that is what Paul is saying here, and I stand on a long line of, I think, faithful scholars and commentators through the century who would reject what I just said as a valid interpretation of this verse. I think that what's going on here in verse 13, or I'm sorry, verse 14, is following on the heels of verse 13, and it's looking at created order. It's saying, Paul is saying that God has an order in creation. Man was created first to lead, to protect, and to serve. Woman was created second to to serve and to encourage and to complement a man. And this order, God's design, has always been opposed. And Paul is looking at the opposition of God's design in the Ephesian church And it's causing his mind to go back to the garden in Genesis 3 where this very order was opposed by Satan himself. And he's seeing that to try and break into God's design. Satan went after the woman first. He tried to come between this complementary relationship, in fact, he did it successfully, to come between this complementary relationship between men and women. And that is exactly what is happening in the church in Ephesus through these cultural forces. Listen to what Tom Schreiner, who is a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of the just most respected New Testament scholars in the church today, and he's also one of Logan Copley's professors at Southern Um, Dr. Schreiner says this in his book, Women in the Church. He says, In approaching Eve then, the serpent subverted the pattern of male leadership and interacted only with the woman. Adam was present throughout and did not intervene. The Genesis temptation, therefore, stands as a prototype of what happens when male leadership is abrogated. In other words, given up on. Eve took the initiative in responding to the serpent, and Adam let her do so. Thus, the appeal to Genesis 3 reminds readers of what happens when humans undermine God's ordained pattern. So do you see what Shriner's getting at there? He's not saying, oh, women are weaker. She's more gullible. She gave in while Adam was over on the other side of the garden tackling a buffalo and skinning it to make a hut for you. He's not saying, man of Adam, read Genesis 3 this afternoon. She takes a bite and right next to her with his, with being passive, (laughs) I almost said something that, could have broke the internet when I got my emails. Adam is right next to her. He bites the apple, she bites the apple, and she, she hands it to him. <laughs> so, 
Paul is not saying that somehow a woman is weaker. He's saying that Satan, in his guile and plan, is getting between this very thing that God has designed, that men are to lead, to protect, to serve, to watch over, to shepherd, to lead, and women are to follow that righteous leadership. And Satan broke into it, and it's still the very thing that's happening in the Ephesian church today. And friends, it is still happening today, is it not? And as a result, the genders are at war with one another. Okay, verse 15. Oh gosh, here we go. And then we'll end and come around the Lord's table. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. <laughs> That's clear. Okay. Many in the church have historically believed, and I don't think this is the right Im- uh, interpretation, that what's going on in 15 is actually a, a spiritual allusion to uh, Eve and ultimately Mary that she, the woman, and all of mankind that comes from her will be saved through childbearing, namely the one child, the Christ child. And so for years, people, that was kind of the dominant um, interpretation of that, that we will be saved through the seed that was promised to Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. And actually, that's true. Like, that that is true. We are saved by the child that was promised right after the fall that is ultimately the seed that then gets developed in the Old Testament that we ultimately see as Jesus who becomes the one true, the the man, Christ Jesus. So that is true, but I, I think that there's something actually more nuanced going in here because let's just go ahead and handle what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that women need to physically bear children to be saved. Okay, because clearly that would contradict much of the rest of the Bible. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul commends celibacy and singleness as a way that some Christians will be freed up to give themselves to serving God in a more devoted way. So let me just pause here right now and say that if you, there, are, there may be people in this room who are called to celibacy and singleness Not because you're missing out on something, but because in God's good design and sovereignty for your life, He has determined that He is going to give you to singleness so that you can fully devote yourself to the cause of Christ and give yourself away to Him like a married person cannot. So, I I disagree with that movie. What was it, Jerry Maguire, where Tom Cruise bursts into the room at the end there and he says, Honey, you complete me or something like that? Listen, listen, single person, you will not be completed by another human being. You are only completed by God. God calls some, in fact, many or most, to marriage, and he does call some to singleness. And so Paul clearly is not saying that you have to physically bear children in order to be saved. That would contradict Ephesians 2, where he says that we're saved by grace through faith alone, and not by having a child physically. It's not salvation by works. So what is he saying? Well, we could spend a whole sermon on this, but I think that Paul is, again, 
in these same lines of this created order, the context is confusion over roles and relationship between men and women. And Paul's argument is that he picks out as an example the most striking difference between men and women and an example of how their roles are different. He's not saying that women must have children in order to be saved or that women are saved by works. But in contrasting men and women, which is exactly what the world wants, is what the world tries to not, the world tries to meld genders into one so that we're confused. And Paul is wanting us to see the distinction between genders so we see their complementary roles. And what he's doing is in his mind, I believe he's picking out the most distinguishing thing over and against what it means to be male for a woman. And that is a woman's ability to have a child. I don't know of any men that have had a baby. And so Paul is saying here that the most striking difference between men and women, for example, is that women can bear children. And that this is an expression, maybe the clearest expression in creation of womanhood. Not that you're not a woman if you don't have a baby. Don't mishear me. But that Paul is saying that a woman, a man, will be saved if he trusts in Christ and then bears with that role of being a leader. A man, we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. And a man that comes to Christ, who truly believes in Jesus, will live out what it means to be a man in this world, to be a humble Christ-like leader. Not every man needs to be a teacher. Not every man needs to exercise authority. Not every man is going to be a pastor or elder or leader in the church. But he needs to be the type of man who lives as a man as fruit of what it means to trust in Christ. And likewise, women are only saved not by having a baby or this or that, but by trusting in Jesus alone and what the Son of God has done on the cross to bear the sin of the world, rise again in victory. That is the only way that women are saved, just like it's the only way that men are saved. And then, as an expression, the one that's probably most notable in Paul's mind, as the world is attacking the created order, as an expression of that, women need to be women, essentially is what he's saying here in their God-ordained role. And one example of that is bearing children. It doesn't mean that you have to bear children, but as men trust in Christ and live out what it means to be men, and as women trust in Christ and live out what it means to be women, just like every man won't be a teacher and a leader, and every, man, every woman won't necessarily bear, bear children, Paul is giving us examples of what it means to be male and female for the glory of God. And we, if we say we trust in Christ, should continue in that. And then what happens? Because you see, what's at issue here is not just our mere gender role. What is at issue here is a church that functions well so that by the way we interact with one another, we are clear about the true message, the true news, the true reason that we're here, that Jesus died as a ransom for all, that he came for men and women, for Jews and Gentiles, for Greeks and slaves, for the rich, for the poor, for all who will trust in him, because sin 
has fractured us. And Jesus has died for our sin and rose again so that all who trust in him will be saved. That's what we're coming to do around this table right now. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table, I know this has been a weighty and perplexing text. Lord, would, would you, by your Holy Spirit, take my <clears throat> weak words and make sense of them? May we be men in this room to the glory of God. May we be humble, Christ-like, servant-hearted men who lay down our lives for the sake of women and children and are not self-absorbed and arrogant and chauvinistic. May the women in this room be content and satisfied with the beauty of Christ-like femininity. May they comport themselves in a way that commends the gospel. May they realize that womanhood goes far beyond beauty or even childbearing. But it's a Christ-like hidden person of the heart and that there is much joy in living out that role of what it means to be a woman. Lord, may we be satisfied with this. And may we as a church struggle and strain in a world and culture that hates this message. May we live it out in a winsome and courageous way. Because what is at stake here is not merely a doctrine or whether or not women can be pastors or something secondary like that. What is at stake here is a display of the beauty and sufficiency of Christ who the Bible tells us is the heavenly husband who comes and lays down his life for his bride, the church. So even the drama of redemption, even the story of salvation is depicted in the scriptures as a relationship between a man and a woman. The man, Christ Jesus, and the woman, the bride of Christ, the church. So by the way we live out our manhood and womanhood either commends or obscures the gospel, Father. And may we live it out well as a church so that it does commend the gospel to an onlooking world. We need help with this. So help us now as we come to your table. May we remember what Jesus the bridegroom did for his bride on the cross as we take the bread. And may we remember how he washed us whiter than snow as we drink the cup for the glory of your name and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.